Nearly a decade ago, we planted Christ Center Reformed Baptist Church in the inner city of Savannah, having a desire to be in the heart of the hood. We got close. We're kind of in an industrial area, so we're close enough. Uh, Throughout our nearly decade in existence, we've been able to go into the uh, inner city with Reformed Truth. The question was asked of me once, why do you incorporate Reformed Baptists in the name of the church? And I said, because I want all to know who we are, what we're about, and when those crazy people leave, they can go and do some research. It has yielded fruit in our city. Uh, We are thankful to be there. Uh, We are seeing the doctrines of grace being discussed, even if it is in the negative, those who reject it, those who despise it, uh, but nonetheless, they're having to discuss it. I am not, first and foremost, a Reformed Baptist. We are the family of God. And my theological framework is of a Reformed or peculiar mindset. And so we've been able to spend time developing and growing our church and those who are part of our local church, and they've become somewhat accustomed to my preaching, and it's only taken a decade. You say, why? Well, I sent word before I came to tell you all to pack a lunch. So for those of you whom I've not come to know, I was a... Pentecostal pastor for years, associate pastor for a number of years before coming to the doctrines of grace. So if it's one thing I know how to do, that's keep you for a long time. (laughs) But it has been shared with me over the years that uh, brevity is something to be desired as well. So I've not quite learned how to do that yet, and so we are currently preaching through the book of Ephesians. We are currently in chapter 3 and verse 1, and 16 months later, (laughs) next week, we'll be in chapter 3 and verse 2. You ought to listen to this stuff. It's interesting. I have a great affinity for the Puritans. They never got swiftly to any statement books and books and books on one verse, those are my kind of guys. Unfortunately, they're all dead. So I don't have many friends who entertain me and my long-windedness. This morning, I'm thankful to be with you, my family, who has taken up the second row on my left-hand side, my wife and our children, The newest one, Brandon, who you all have been praying for, uh, is with us this morning. Uh, And it is something getting accustomed to a soon-to-be 11-month-old having your eldest being an 18-year-old. The body, the mind is willing, but the body not so much. So we're thankful for my family Uh, joining me this morning uh, as we uh, will spend time with you this morning from the book of Ephesians as we will take our cue from chapter 2 
And for the sake of context, I want to start at verse 17 and end at verse 22. And the word of God reads, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The earth shall soon grow old, but the word of the Lord is going to remain forever. Our sermon subject this morning is United by Faith. United by Faith. Babylon, as John says, is that great deceiver who causes the world to move away from the true and the living God. John bemoans and wails this point when he says, Babylon, Babylon the great, judgment is coming. It is going to befall you. Why the judgment of Babylon? It is because Babylon is deceptive with its practices, with its innuendo, with its pull, and with its draw. As Christians, Babylon is is the world. It is drawing us, it is enticing us away from God to, to see life through its lenses, through its worldview, which is antithetical to the truth of God. The world in the vernacular of my grandfather tells you to go up when Christ tells you to come low. The world causes us to see this fleeting, this fading earth, this dusty ground as our home, and so to desire those things of this home. In our sermon this morning, I want to draw our attention and our heart to the words of Scripture that declares to us that we, you, all of us who call upon the name of the Lord and are recipients of his redemptive work, we are the family of God. We are not becoming. It's not a distant thought. It is an actual reality for every single one of us. Here the Apostle Paul is addressing the great quagmire of the Ephesian church. Those of a Jewish background becoming one with those of a Gentile worldview. Two colliding worldviews coming together into one house, into one church, into the family of God. There is a bit of an a eschatological outlooking in this text. Paul is kind of looking out to, to who we are in Christ. Paul is looking out to the foundation upon which, we, upon which we all are built. 
Paul is kind of looking out there in a future of what is ours in some sense, but is developing in another. You are united by faith. You are the family of God. Union with Christ and communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit is co-equal in some sense with our union with one another. To come to know Christ, to come to have God as our Father and the Holy Spirit indwelling us is to bring us kind of on a, on a, on a bit of a familial and an equal plane with each other. Uniquely eschatological in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The proto-evangelium, the first time we hear the gospel declared to us, is kind of an outworking eschatological view that there is coming one who is going to reverse what has happened. The family that was, was broken in some sense is going to be is going to be united and put back together. In another sense, in Adam we all fail, yes. But to Adam, in whom we were, the proclamation of the Son was coming. The goodness of the world, the truth of the church, the love of our souls is coming. Adam has destroyed this family, but there is coming one who is going to unite it. As the first century church was made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, they were earmarked with their pasts, coming into one house, built upon one foundation, Jesus as its key and chief cornerstone, the apostles and prophets being the foundation upon which they all are built, are now kind of resurrecting in this architectural and ecological system. We see Paul utilizing kind of an architectural background, but then he kind of infuses the human element that we as Christians are kind kind of the brick and the mortar, kind of the stones that is building this house in which God himself will dwell. So I must tell you what my intent today is in the preaching of this text. I do believe that Babylon does speak to the world, and if our ears are not careful, we begin to hear the chatter of it. What is the chatter of it? There is one who stands outside of the church, constantly accusing her of not being woke. Interestingly enough. She stands and she throws her fiery darts of just disunity against the church, against the bride of Jesus. And some have fallen prey. Some have fallen susceptible to such deceiving and beguiling words. And there is such infighting in those who are a part of the church, standing outside of the church, telling the church what they ought to be. You're not woke. 
If you're white, you should have some white guilt. And if you don't carry it around as a banner, then you might not be a Christian. If you're black, you got to talk about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X every day or you're not woke. They have even begun to turn on the doctrine that has been passed down through generations, the, the entrustment of truth. Well, you can't really be woke if you hold to a Reformed Baptist soteriology because all of those people were slave owners. They are supposedly a part of that, which is the, the ecological house of God in which he, he dwells, but they stand on the same corridor in the same street corner pointing at the church with the enemies of God. Who is the true accuser of the brethren? It is Satan. And so I share with them and I share with us in our hearts today, take heed how we judge the one whom Christ has died for. He, as the Apostle Paul reminds the church at Ephesus, yes, there are differences. I often share this one. I like macaroni and cheese and fried chicken. Go figure. That's not because I'm black. That's because I'm from the South, and that's what we eat, macaroni and cheese and fried chicken. As my grandpa would say, I'm not an Italian, so I don't have to have pasta every day. And I'm not a rabbit. I don't eat salads. It's America. But we have differences. Paul says, but the dividing differences in Chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, the dividing differences, the wall of hostility that once existed between two ethnic groups, those who are Jews and those who are ethnos, who are Gentiles, these two once divided people groups have now come into one house, bringing about God's redemptive work, the beauty of Christ's redemptive work, bringing people from multiple backgrounds, differences, when there should not be any cohesion, according to the world system, have now been brought into one house. And Paul says, I need to remind you that which divides you has already been destroyed for he has torn down the wall of hostility that once, yes, once, existed between us. But what God has done in Jesus was treat him as, he was the, as if he was the very source of all human division and crushed him sufficiently so that now we who love macaroni and cheese and fried chicken and others who don't can say, well, that's kind of different. You might die a little bit early. You might get heart disease. But, man, I love this guy. The church has been shamed into silence. Do not be ashamed. What have I to fear with my Lord so near? Nothing. Stand for what is true. Speak of the union of the races, of the nations, of ethnicities is probably the better term. Speak against those who 
Paul calls in the book of Acts wolves and dogs who seek to divide the church, call them what they are. Dogs, evildoers. The great contempt of the world is this, that in some way, in some sense, and in some how, except we speak to social issues, we're not being good Christians. Here's what I want to share with you this morning. This is not new to the church. Her response is the same as it's always been, Jesus and Jesus alone. The Apostle Paul shares with us that that Jesus came and he preached peace to those who were afar off. That is, to all those Gentile nations, Christ came through the holy apostles and preached peace to them, to us, to me. And he drew us into this household where Abba is our father, and we call him Daddy. We were afar off, and we have now been, been brought into this, this church that is, that is being built from the, from the time of Adam until the time of Christ. And, and now the full structure is resurrected. It is called the church, and all the world is coming into the church. People from every nation, from every kindred, from every tribe, from every tongue. Why? Because the one who promised to Abraham that through you, all the families of the earth is going to be blessed. Through your seed, all the families of the earth is going to be blessed. He makes good on his promise as he always does. How will the families of the earth be blessed? How will they be blessed to come to know the true and the living God through the preaching of Christ? Unfortunately, in Western cultures and societies, there is not just an attack on the church. It doesn't start with the church. It starts against a moral structure. There first starts to become the eroding of the moral structure, where those who may not hold to a religious affinity have some sense of human morality about themselves. They speak. They're polite. They help those who are sick. Those who are in need, they give to the poor. They refrain from certain outworkings, lest they offend others. There's a sense of human goodness, a sense of human morality. In our country, we begin to erode that human morality. We begin to uh, erode that human goodness when we attack the least among us. You see, all of these things are connected, and and again, this is not a political speech, but I want to show you how the kind of the eroding of a moral society ends at the door of the church. That which is growing in you, mother, is not a life, they say. It's a glob tissue that has no rights, that has no feelings, that has no choice to live. 
Make the decision for them. Empower yourself. Be your own person. And so we start with the smallest among us. Life within the womb is attacked. We give certain limitations to it, but slowly those limitations erode. Now we do partial birth abortion, late-term abortion, and as some proponents of the hideousness of ACT said in their presidential platform that they believe that the woman has the right to choose even outside of the womb. Think of that. Babylon is speaking. Morality erodes. Then what's the next step? The next step is now the discussion of the elderly among us. Do they have the right to live? Do they have the right to exist? Shouldn't we just put them out of their misery so they don't cost us that much in here? Once we have breached that border, what is next? Well, what is religious freedom? Religious freedom is hate speech. Oh, to say anything against those who desire to be of an alternative lifestyle, they called it. It is hate speech, so we now need to regulate your religious free speech. Well, here's the good news. It, it, it pushes further. So now you have worked every day of your life. But that's not good enough because we don't want to take 38% from you. We want to take 75% away from you. And that's not good enough. We just want to take it all and control it. You see, every moral barrier is systematically removed, and now they end as a big mob at the door of the church. And they say, let us in. Your pulpits will not be heterosexual, male-led congregations. They will now be homosexual, pansexual, transsexual led worship services. And if you don't allow us in, we will sue you and we will close you down. We will picket and we will boycott. But they do not stop there. They will not stop until they get to the text of Scripture. And once they've removed that, Then, then they'll say we've done a good job. Now the church is in line. It's welcoming. It's accommodating. It doesn't speak out against anything. Everything is okay. So now we will come, we will hold hands, we will sing kumbaya around the the bonfire, sacrifice our children, cloister the truth of the gospel, deny the text of Scripture, reject the one who has bought us with his own blood, 
Now the church is palatable for the world. You see, that is what Babylon the Great wants. And systematically, her agents, as Paul said to the church at Ephesus, rises up within her, seeking to lead others astray. So now Paul shares that this pillar and this buttress of truth, the foundation of the gospel, the entrustment of God on earth, by which the whole world will come to know Jesus, the church. You're now facing your difficulties. And I want you to note from verse 17 to verse 22, that the one thing that Paul does not say ought to be the answer of the church is to separate or to divide. Notice he didn't say to the Ephesian church, having uh, uh, those of a Jewish worldview and a Gentile worldview coming together, united by faith in Christ, notice that his response to them is not, well, you guys don't get along so hot, so I'll tell you what you do, just leave and go start your own separate churches. Notice that is not the response. But to kind, of, to kind of preempt that, the Apostle Paul reminds them in chapter 1 of how they've come to, to know God. It was a sovereign act of a sovereign God. He has predestined us to the adoption of sons. Let me remind you. Let me remind you that you have not been saved by works, but you have been saved by God's grace. And you've received that through the gift of faith. Let me remind you of that. Let me remind you that the peace that you now have with God is because of the propitiatory work of Jesus that now both the Jews who rejected Messiah and you Gentiles who were far off having now been brought into the household of God, Jesus has propitiated for your sins and now you both equally cry out to God as Father. Yes, there was some hostility. Yes, there were some differences. But reckon them to be dead because they are. They are truly dead. As I share with our church, as I preach through this text, I said the problem is we keep pandering to goats. We keep pandering to those who are goats. Who is it that destroys this beautiful edifice that Jesus has died for Who does that? Jesus says there's but one who has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Who is it that seeks to destroy this beautiful union? We are indissolubly linked by the indissoluble union of the Spirit in our hearts and lives. Though there may be differences, our differences will never be so great as to divide us because that which unites us is greater than that which is created. We are united by the self-existent, eternal God who spoke all things into existence and is so powerful as to uphold it by the word of his power. You've been united by him. The Apostle Paul shares with them that you can have some some semblance of hope as he kind of shows us this eschatological end in verse 20. 
that you are not only the household of God, verse 19, but you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Paul uses this kind of architectural term to share with the church, both Jew and Gentile, that what you both are sitting upon, the foundation that you have, is equally yours, belonging to both and to all who come into the house of God. Christ himself being the the keystone that that sets the plumb line for for the edifice that is about to be erected. The apostles and prophets carrying out the will of God in the earth as the foundation of the church. And might I add, there is no more foundation being laid than that which has already saints been laid. And upon this foundation, the church sits. The idea of living yet staggered stones being stacked upon one another, course of living stone after course of living stone. The holiness that exudes from the key and the cornerstone effervesces and is pervasive throughout the entire structure. We are not simply joined to one another, saints, but we are joined to one another in Jesus. And all the work of the apostles and the prophets was to to continue that unifying truth and resounding reality that we have a king of mercy and of grace that is seated upon us. And he is not sowing discord and disunity in his bride. But what he is sowing in them is holiness and love. An appreciation for the differences that, hey, listen, apart from Jesus, we probably wouldn't be sitting in the same building. But praise be to God. He has shown forth his power to save. I grew up a very strict, conservative, Pentecostal, if such a thing exists. But if you showed up with tattoos on, you were out, buddy. You were, not, you were not a believer. How dare you tattoo your whole body? Some of you who are in strict fundamentalist Southern Baptist churches, you know that. A pastor with a tattoo? Sweet Jesus. That's not supposed to happen. But what brought us together? It wasn't you. You might think you brought yourself to this church. It wasn't you. It was the Holy Spirit knitting, building, staggering you in this local assembly. So that in this church, God's manifold wisdom might be displayed. That we, who according to the world standard, should probably be in differing places, differing parts of the country, differing parts of the world, differing ideologies. Some of you probably picketing in Colorado for the legalization of marijuana. Some of you potentially out on the West Coast 
still wearing your sandals and bell bottoms. But because the Holy Spirit has brought us to saving faith in Christ, he has brought you all from over this country, from this area, and he has put you together as a church. And you cannot be guilted because of that. Now, let me say this. The point that I am aiming to make in that last statement is this. And I take first position on this. Someone asked me, why is it that your church is all black? I said, well, we're not all black. We got a couple of, you know, uh, uh, Hispanic fellas in there and good brother. A couple of uh, mixed uh, ethnicity individuals. I said, it's fine. I said, listen, I'm not going to be guilted for who's here. I'm going to be open for who comes. That's how it starts. Well, you know, you don't look so diverse. So then you get your pastoral staff all juiced up. And they say, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find me a good Asian brother, and I'm going to make him an elder. I'm going to find me a good black brother, and I'm going to make him an elder. I'm going to find a good, you know, just a good Hispanic brother. And we're going to be able to say to the world, look at us. We're so modern. Please. You are called to be open to those whom the Holy Spirit brings your way. Nearly a decade ago, I came to this church with my four little babies. And let me share something with you. We ended up planning a church from the same church. You don't have to listen to those who are the accuser of the brethren and the voice of Satan tell you you have to be woke. Because you see this? This is an example of how woke you are. Your church supported and planted the gospel in Savannah, Georgia that is reaching into Fraser Home and all of these other places where gang violence is so strong. Your church supported that. The Holy Spirit knitted you together And guess what? You help support that church that is now being pastored. And it's in the hood. And it's effective. And it's working. God has already torn down the wall of petition and division that stood against us. And can I tell you what? I am your labor of love. Because we are built on the same foundation. The source of holiness that pervades our souls stem from the same Jesus whom they crucified. We are built upon apostolic truth. And eschatologically, when we're all erected on that day, God himself will live in the midst of us and he will be our God. And with great voices of praise, we shall say, we are your people. The book of Hosea is an outworking of this. 
You who were once afar off, you were not my people. You had no mercy. You had not my love. But it is the Apostle Peter who shares with us that that wasn't simply written for Israel. But he says that it was truly indeed written for us. For Peter tells us in, in, in chapter 1 of, of 1 Peter, that same truth. As he preaches to the Jewish Gentile church, you were once not my people, but now you are. You once had not my love, but you do. We are loved. We are united by faith in the person of Jesus. We collectively together are the benefits that are flowing from him that I once had not a brother oh so near, but through the work of the Spirit, he has given me many brothers. Lastly, please allow me to share this with you. An individual by the name of the Reverend Julian Lansing, Doctrine of Divinity, circa 1860, was the pastor of United Presbyterian Church in America, which was an extension of the, pardon me, who was also the professor at the Dutch Reformed Theological Seminary in New Brunswick, New Jersey where he had such a great burden for the Arabian Peninsula, the Middle East, for you good Americans. He had such a burden for the Middle East, but had not the ability to go there because the Presbyterian did not have the funds at the moment. And so they broke away and created a kind of a, a denominational alliance. Patrons the work in the Arabian Peninsula known as the work to the Mohammedans. Under his tutelage, he sent out three missionaries to this area, Samuel Zwemer, James Cantine, and Philip T. Phelps, who were some of their seminarians that he supported, who had the desire to go, those others sent, and these brothers went. Having such a great desire, he sends them with this great hymn, this great song that I think is so appropriate for today. He writes, there is a land long since neglected. There is a people still rejected. But the truth and grace elected in his love for them. Softer than the mighty wind, richer than the starry tents, stronger than the sands protecting, is his love for him. To the host of Islam leading, to the slave in bondage bleeding, to the desert dweller pleading, bring his love to them. Through the promise of God's pages, through his weak work in history's stages, through the cross that crowns the ages, shows his love to them. 
with the prayer that still availeth, with the power that prevaileth, with the love that never faileth, tell his love to them. Till the desert suns, now aliens, till its tribes and their dominions, till Arabia's raptured millions, praise this love of them. Two out of three of these men died, one from disease and one killed by the natives. For seven years, they labored in Arabia, and they had two converts. Yet their love for the nations was not revealed by how many populated their small church. The love for the nations was revealed in the fact that they went. Your love is not revealed necessarily, or at all really, in the makeup of your church. Your love is revealed in the fact that you welcome all the world so that they may come and hear of the Lord that is so near. You are united by faith. We are united by faith. And let no one tell you otherwise. 